Welcome to Wobblies and Wizards. I am your host, Logar the Barbarian, joined today by our guest, James Holloway, host of Monster Man and author of Magonia Mind Murders. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. No doubt, no doubt. Now, uh, I guess we'll start with, I want to start asking about Magonia Mind Murders because, well, we, we looked at it here on the on the podcast and this funded crowdfunded, I believe it was last zine month. Was that on itch? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I'm because of things that are more complex than worth talking about last year, they had this uh, zine month as opposed to the usual zine quest, which was in the summer last year instead of in February, like it usually is. Um, and so, yeah, I decided to try uh, itch funding for the Magonia mine murders. So it worked out. Okay. I think you know there are challenges to it that are they're different from the usual kind of running a Kickstarter, but it, yes. in, in the end, I think it it went pretty well. Um, it uh, it came out in print and digitally uh, in the summer of 2022, and we've uh, you know we sold through our first pretty small print run, so I'm pretty happy with it, and I'm really pleased by the reception um, I, that it's I, had. It's nice to see people uh, you know reading it and playing it and talking about it. Oh yeah, I I like it. It's a well written. Here's the thing: when this, the way that you wrote this is different than what I get from a lot of modules, um, and I see differences that I, that I like because it 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 what's the word? It jives with what I'm what the way I prep for game and think about game and mm. preparation. Could you speak to some of how the approach was to how you put this out? So the organization of the Magonia Mind Murders that like probably changed more than anything else over the time that I was developing it. Cause this is actually a scenario that I ran in my game, right? Mm -hmm. like, like I, I, this is something that was in my old D and D campaign and it's just kind of changed a bunch of times. So for me, what was the structure of it is meant to be like, partly it has this sort of open-ended what I call a clue box, but it also has this core mystery that is a kind of classic whodunit, right? That someone has been murdered and you have a bunch of characters who all could potentially have, have Done killed it. them. And that also <laughs> yeah. has the, the mining camp being like a distance from the town was meant to create that kind of like, uh, you know, oh, well, it has to be somebody here kind yes. of situation where you're like, ah, oh, well, then the killer is still in the house kind of thing. <laughs> so you knew that it was this limited number of people. And so for me, the kind of the, the key part of the of the game was the suspects. And so the the idea being that like the investigation would necessarily be kind of open-ended because the PCs would have sort of initially meet all these people and then typically they would fixate on somebody and decide that person was responsible. That has been my experience. Uh, and only one case did it turn out to be right, really. <laughs> but eventually they get around to that. I've never I've never had anybody not figure out who did it, although they have sometimes failed to catch the culprit. But um, oh, no. that to me meant like... When I started getting into old school gaming, because I didn't like I didn't come up particularly with like D and D in the eighties uh, yeah. when I was young. I started playing a lot of other games. I, my first game was Tunnels and Trolls, but I played like Palladium games, Marvel superheroes, all that kind of thing. Right? Very much my trajectory. I had <laughs> very much my trajectory. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's but it's kind of like it's slightly to one side of what I think most people are are used to. So I never really played classic D and D until I was mm -hmm. much older, and then sort of it was already like a consciously retro thing. And there, the sort of thing that really spoke to me about it was like the open-endedness of this, right? So here we are in this like constrained environment with constrained resources, but we're not on a narrative path, 
-hmm. If we want to go into this room and find this thing and use it to solve that problem and then talk to this guy and get him to help against that guy, like that is how the game is meant to be played. And it's not organized in any, you know, that, that, that we're not having those sort of expectations. So I thought, well, I want to apply that philosophy to a more open scenario but that still is just a collection of resources and a collection of like affordances on which pcs can act rather than like if you look at how a lot of mystery scenarios written if you look at how a lot of mystery scenarios are written they're very much like well you go to the library and at the library you find the will and the will takes you to the lawyer's <laughs> office and then the lawyer tells you to go talk to the old you know prospector and yeah. the prospector tells you about the mine so you go to the mine and that to me is less like that that has you know it feels more like kind of um railroady <laughs> well, it is it is a little bit right like it, it can be quite linear i think you know there's two ways to sort of square that and the other is the gumshoe uh approach which is where you say well look you have all the information the question is what do you do with the information yes right? so you know now you have the power the question is what decision do you make with that power which I think is also interesting. Now, I don't know necessarily, you know, and maybe I shouldn't say this about my own scenario, but I don't <laughs> know that I necessarily nailed the organization because I think there are aspects of it that people found maybe there was too much of one thing or there was not enough of another. I know that like when I read, like, you know, I really enjoy the reviews on 10 foot pole and, 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 and he was quite critical of the Magoni and my murders in a review that I read. And I was like, well, this is all fair. <laughs> you know he, he didn't like that the dungeons weren't that developed like he thought that they needed more stuff and to him it seemed obvious that like the town was the main focus yes and then i've heard other people's experience playing it like when it when they discussed it on fearful black dragon i think tom mcgrenery said that his uh players mainly got caught up in the the prize fighting racket yes. and didn't really do much <laughs> of the other stuff you know um, whereas one time I ran it, my players just ignored the prize fight game altogether. They just didn't, you know, that, that wasn't what they were interested in. So I think, you know, sometimes when you when you see people respond to something like that, it, it sort of tells you that your assumptions about what was the exciting thing about it were obviously just like, well, that's what it was to me. Yeah. You know, I, I see a, someone lying on the ground with a crossbow bolt in their back and immediately I'm like, the house is surrounded. No one leaves until we found the killer. You know, that's... <laughs> That's just my impulse, but, uh, but you know, different people approach it differently. But so, but so, yeah, it's kind of, it, it's an attempt to do a mis the mystery genre or like the crime caper genre. Yes. But not the way that those scenarios are typically written. So like to take the tools of a sandbox and apply them to a genre that isn't just like, you know, exploring a valley with a naga in it or well, whatever. And I'll say that the way that it's written, it gives me enough information at the beginning to kind of wrap my head around what's going on as a dungeon master or game master or whatever it's going to be. Mm. Um, and and enough to flesh out the inspiration, like with inspiration, what was the word, the drives behind the NPCs mm. and stuff you're going to run around. This is kind of like, I like the way it's written because the way I run a game, it's written very much towards the way I like to approach running a game. I like it. Now, that being said, I couldn't pick this up right now and just run at the table cold turkey. I would have no. to, I, and I've read it once. Uh, I've read through the whole thing to review it. You know, we didn't get a chance to bring it to the table yet, but reading through it, I was like, okay, I'm going to have to read through this again. And I think the way I would 
prep for the game is the way I prep for any game. I'll take a notebook and I'll write down names of NPCs and jot down, you know, page numbers and pertinent mm. informations for myself and make a quick outline so that when people are going, that's the way I'd approach running it. Cause it's very sandboxy. I like that. <laughs> that is to me, like w- one thing that I, that, that struck me as interesting, you know, you said that like, that's something that I've heard from multiple people. Like I couldn't just sit down and run it cold. And I, I I went. People do that. Um, you know, I have uh, some. <laughs> There's yeah. Some like well, that. I mean, so I kind of have been trying to, because I think you know, I think that's a fair point. I think prep time is mm-hmm. one of the things that sort of puts people off of the idea of running games. You know, they see it as, uh, you know, it's it's hard to find the time, particularly yeah. if you're, you know, an adult. <laughs> you have a lot of it. other things that are competing for your time, right? And so, oh, yeah. I, I get that about wanting to make games that are more uh, accessible mm-hmm. by kind of, you know, minimizing the amount of pregame fun. I, I tried or pregame work, what they call lonely fun, right? Yeah, <laughs> I do a lot of that. I, I'm, a, I'm a big prep person. Mm. I'll spend a lot of time. I try to spend a lot of time if I have it prepping for game. I usually have more prepared than ever makes it to the table. <laughs> yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I um But so I tried to run it. I tried to. Uh, I recently... I incorporated, so I have an ongoing campaign that I'm running, and I incorporated the adventure uh, Where the Wheat Grows Tall, yes. um, which which is a, kind of a Slavic folklore-inspired thing by, I have to look up the author's name, or um, I'm going to get it wrong, and I would hate to do that because I think it's really good. Um, Where the Wheat Grows Tall is by um, uh, Camilla Greer. Oh, I was right the first time. Camilla Greer and Evelyn Moreau, with great art by Evelyn Moreau. Um, and I ran that pretty cold. Like I had read it, but I didn't like do much markup and I didn't, you know, I yeah. sort of, I printed out some maps and things like that. But other than that, I didn't really, cause I backed it and I just had the the PDF and I like, it was fun, but it was kind of stressful because <laughs> my players are, are uh, a chatty social bunch, right? So they yeah. meet some weird grotesque fairy tale character. And the first thing they would do is play 20 questions with it. Just be like, all right. And then. Have you spoken to anyone else? Where's this person? What's going, you know, they will never like get into a fight. I will tell you, knowing what these NPCs are in their head and like, like how they interact with the world is one of the important parts for me. Mm. Regardless, I usually run into folks and they, their questions are going to be about the individual NPCs and stuff. And yeah, that's the part where you got to have it straight in your head a lot. Definitely. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to jump, uh, change topics. <laughs> Monster Man. Yes. Tell us a little bit about Monster Man, if you could. Uh, so Monster Man is my podcast. It comes out most weeks, twice a week. Um, it is a. It started out as me just reading the AD and D first edition Monster Manual and just going through it monster by monster. Yeah. Kind of talking about where they came <laughs> from and what their deal was, and um, you know, I don't pretend to any kind of expertise in that subject, but it's <laughs> sort of I was uh. You know, I like to view it as I'm I'm learning about these things, you know, so yes. uh, and it's really fascinating these days because I have a Patreon for it. Patrons who pledged at a certain level get to request a topic for a special episode. Oh, nice. That to me, I like I love that. It's 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 super challenging. Like I've had people ask me like I had one uh, patron asked me to do an episode about the Zacro Master. The Zacro Master is a guy who or I say a guy, a person who made <laughs> cylinder seals in crete in like the bronze age and he just says they have all these weird like composite animals on them 
And I just thought, okay, great. You want me to talk about like a Bronze Age cylinder? Oh, sure, fine. All right. You know, you're in charge. <laughs> I just like you're, you, you know, you tell me the destination and I just drive there. Like this, this podcast, the cab. But that really, to me, helps keep it. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been going through. Um, there's, we're, there's five seasons now. We're on the fifth one, which we're going through. Monstrous Manual for AD&D Second Edition. Um, oh yes. And there's not like a huge amount of new material. In it, oh, that's you know, a great kind of an, book, though. An updating of the church. It's yeah, it's a good book. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know I, like I, there were bits of it. I, there were bits of it I really like. I love that uh, monstrous manual. The monstrous manual for sec. I, I've got the I've got the three ring binders. Yeah, yeah. filled with plenty of it. But that that big giant compiled monstrous manual has been one of my favorite monster manuals for years because it's got so much in there and uh i think it does have a lot recent years there's been a few that i've been a little more i i that have come out that i've been a little more happy with but i really loved that monstrous manual <laughs> it's been at my table a lot <laughs> the standout thing of it that i think it really like distinguishes it and then obviously this was true of other books that came out around the same time as well is uh tony deterlitzy mm-hmm. that his art in in monstrous manual is fantastic and it's just it's such a shame whenever there's some like weird fairy tale monster and he's not the one that got picked to illustrate it and you're just kind of <laughs> like i can't even enjoy this i'm thinking about how good the tony deterrence illustration of it would have been you know I, I i love his stuff i obviously still love it would you know like yeah he's not gone or anything but like that to me is the standout but it's also kind of like one of the things that is both interesting and frustrating about the older uh ADD monster books is that they're very like they're very kind of inconsistent in how they approach uh different creatures because I think they're they're composites they're all written by different people and there's not a lot of like editorial standardization like there's this kind of fiction of like oh okay, Gary Gygax wrote this but I don't <laughs> in most cases certainly for Monster Manual 2 I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah. So in Monstrous Manual that they've kind of like taken this standardized like biological approach to everything and so yes. there's all this stuff in here about like the reproductive cycle of the leprechaun or whatever and you're just like no it's not really <laughs> it's not when i when i think of a leprechaun the first thing i think to be interested in is not like how long is its gestation period but i feel like they've kind of they decided that this is the th- this is the attitude of like 90s <laughs> D is that it was you know this is an encyclopedia about a fantasy world not something that's meant to like inspire you so there are bits of it that i think are really great and then there are bits of it that i think are a bit kind of yeah you know this entry has to be a page long those are the rules (laughs) if we have half a page to say about something well then by gum we're going to add another page of stuff about like what kind of tree it lives in and there there are some new approaches now that i don't think they were back then we're not taking to monster manuals like uh look what the mary mushman recently did with their fantasy well, I mean, uh, I, I wrote part of that book. Let's talk about that, because that that's really nice. You know, that whole project was just a joy to mm-hmm. work on. I had such a good time. And it was there, like, what I'd love is to see that added, is to see that approach be more common, because the, the monsters that I picked were, one, from, like, a period of, of history that I study, was the Dinestra, yes. and then there was one that was from Fearsome Creatures of Lumberwoods, that's the Gumbaroo. There were two that were from the area here where I live in, mm-hmm. in the UK now. So yes. between Children of Woolpit and Shuka. And then the last one was from where I used to live when I lived in California. And so I lo- and so it was the same for a lot of the writers that they were writing about things that were from the part, you know, the places that they lived, right? So that yes. there we had, you know, these creatures from um, you know, Jogan did the ones about 
like Brazilian monsters and the rest of the, a lot of French authors on the project who were doing like these. And in particular, the kinds of things that like, if you were like an American or a British person writing a book where you're like, oh, I want a French monster. You mm -hmm. would just pick like the most representatively French creature you could find, <laughs> which I don't know what that would be, but you know what I yeah. mean? Like, <laughs> but then if you are French, then you're like, oh, well, this monster that this village believes in or like this story that I heard, you know, like it, you when you're inside the thing, you have a more individual perspective. And so uh, all I want is to franchise the folklore <laughs> bestiary and start seeing game creators from all different parts of the world. I want to see, the, yeah, I want to see more. If they're putting out a second one, I want it. Yeah, I, I love it. And the way that they approach to doing a bestiary in that book is is so much better than what I've seen before because it gives you so much information to use it in a playable game manner. Right. Well, they're, I mean, they're little mini scenarios or in some cases, mini campaigns. Yes. Right. Like the, that they're they're hard to decide and it's and that's interesting to me because you know a lot of folkloric monsters don't really function like that so i i always think about this when i i looked at like the banshee in ad and d because in in irish folklore what a banshee does is it, it turns up and it wails and that's a sign that somebody's going to die yes right it's like oh it's it's, it's just a fact it's not it, <laughs> like in the game it kills people yeah, so yeah, kind of a bit of a difference there. <laughs> yeah, because one of them's not very playable, mm -hmm. right? Indeed, the whole point of the Banshee is that there's nothing you can do about it, right? Is yes. There's no player agency in the story of a creature that appears because someone's absolutely going to die. So there are a lot of folklore creatures that you look at them, you're like, well, how could I, you know, okay, great, but how do I, how do I make this into a, um, it's why ghosts in AD&D first are so weird. They're not like, ghosts from ghost stories at all and that i think is because ghosts from ghost stories are not very interactable for the most part right i have a problem running ghosts too sometimes i i, I mm. get i find it like 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 just the so like the the idea that like everything we see we have to fight by sorting it and you know rolling my 20 and combating it i feel that the folklore bestiary pulled us away from that to give you more mm -hmm. creative things to do with a monster besides just hey i walked into a monster roll a 20 to see if you hit yeah and well and a lot of them are not <laughs> all that like certainly of the ones that i did and i tend toward the low end of the scale in terms of the kinds of things that i run some of them are pretty powerful in that book but like the green children of Woolpit, the people of the holy city are and and really the denestra are, are kind of just sort of people right they're they're not much notable above a human and a, and a gumbaroo is about as tough as a brown bear which is to say pretty <laughs> tough but not like unstoppable rampage tough yeah but the 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 but the point of them was that they have these other qualities, like that they you know that they're desirable for some reason, right? Like the gumbaroo yes. is this thing that people want to go out and hunt, or the green children of Woolpit are like, well, they you know they escaped from fairyland, did they? What if somebody wants them back, right? They're they're the plot hooks as much as they are monsters, and I feel like that's particularly you know if all you're gonna do is fight this thing on a grid of squares, I feel like we're good. I mean, and that's too is like. Like, like there's the strategy game of combat which you get more in like pathfinder and stuff like that mm -hmm. kind of has a more a more solid rule for doing that playing out maps and stuff like that kind of a third edition thing that was brought in yeah. a little more yeah, yeah yeah uh and then you got games like uh oh oh osprey press puts out all kinds of uh all kinds yeah, of yeah, miniature skirmish mm -hmm. games and whatnot battle tech and things like that Looking at chainmail and the early Napoleonic game, that's kind of a roots of where role playing comes from. But we're 
playing more in role-playing games with the narrative, with the interaction, with the role-play aspect, and doing the role-play aspect, I tend to get a little bored with rolling back and forth too much, having something there to make these creatures we interact with more of a story, less of just a, hey, ho, action fight. One of the things that I, you know, I got asked, one of the one of the specials that somebody asked me to write was, you know, how do you make fights with monsters interesting? And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of things, but one of the things you have to remember is that people fight about things and they fight in places, you know, like the reason the yeah. reason you're fighting is that somebody, you want to do something and somebody wants to stop you or vice versa. And you are somewhere that you can't, you can neither just go around them nor be completely blocked off. Right. Yes. And so that thing about people, you know, people have reasons to fight and then those reasons complicate the fight. Right. We're trying to rescue this person. We want to, you know, we need to get to this place before the whatever the bomb goes off. All those reasons for conflict or even just like you killed my father, prepare to die. You know, all those reasons (laughs) for conflict. That's kind of what is unique about the monster, because I think if you if you go to any game's monster manual and pull monsters at random you'll start to see that you run across ones that are mechanically identical to yeah, each, yeah. each other right i but mean people that's don't even care a, about that that's even a thing though like a lot of times like my monsters are just goblins reskin i'm just opening up mm-hmm. the goblin there and saying oh it's this yeah <laughs> we had rabid absolutely we had rabid shih tzu uh centaur type creatures <laughs> and they were just goblins but if you go look at, say, like one of the things I'm always complaining about, well, I, I try not to complain, but one of the things that that certainly I have pointed out is that AD&D in particular has a lot of like woodland sprite type monsters, right? It's got a lot of tricky fairies that live in a forest. And those monsters are mechanically quite different from each other. So like a pixie and a sprite are not all that similar, but they're conceptually very much the same. Yes. And consequently, nobody cares about sprites. You know what I mean? Like they're <laughs> there. So it's not like if you were just playing that game where you just what matters is what they can do, then it would make a big difference that you you would think of these two things as very separate from each other. But I don't think people do because what's important to them is like, well, what's its deal? And its deal is it's a little pointy eared guy that plays tricks on travelers in the forest. And it's just like, well, yeah, so are like nine other creatures in this game. Um, and I think that, that that goes to what you were saying about what's important about these things is what's their hook. Like, I, I, now, I don't want to say anybody can come up with a stat block because I, I can't. Like, I'm terrible at that kind of stuff. And I always just kind of, yeah, I swipe things and, you know, uh, yeah. maybe that's why my creatures tend to be quite human-like because, I, you know, that's where I start, right? It's like, well, per- what, if, what if this was a person? Yes, no doubt. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think that's what people find memorable. And I think by kind of focusing on that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's what's so great about a folklore bestiary. And I understand if there there are people who are like, well, I listen, I make up crazy monsters all day. What I want are the stats to <laughs> to translate that. You know, like there is um, there's another case to be made. But I, yeah, no, I love it. And and also, it's just such a they're such nice books. Like, oh yeah, it's really it's really satisfying. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I, holding a nice, uh, well, you know, like I've said before, books are very much uh, uh, paper products. Things you can hold in your hand are very much an artistic mm-hmm. endeavor in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think that 
we're in an era where like things are shifting to making when you buy a book you want it to be a little nicer the world of the pay, dime store paperback novel you know when people have nooks and everything else to get it cheap and read it quick and easy that's kind of you know on on pads and everything else for a lot yeah. of folks having a book print there's something about that i feel that's unique i think that's i'm like i i i'm maybe not sure that for me personally i feel the mm -hmm. same way but I, I like i think you're absolutely right that like there's there's come this point where it's like well yeah if you just want the data yeah you know you you can get it on a device and then you know therefore if you're going to buy a book you want something that has a reason specifically for being a book and i do feel like those um those best series and knock the magazine that oh i love that thing <laughs> such a just yeah like every 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 issue is is such a delight um, now my, myself i have a hard time reading digitally so i tend to buy everything in physical <laughs> I, I just it's difficult for me to read uh digitally having mm. a book in front of me i read a lot i need that book um but that's kind of a sidetrack i have got a question uh that brings something up um mm -hmm. you have your you have a phd correct or uh right. doctor so archaeology yeah yeah so i and I've noticed that like my areas of study tend to be things that and my interests in those lines tend to be things that I've brought into prepping for game or thinking about game and have integrated into my personal game. I'm wondering if that's something you've done or something you could speak to there. Cause archaeology seems like something that we could definitely use. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so um no, I mean I think that's true. So I I find actually sometimes I have to kind of resist the impulses that I have because you know um so right now a lot of people we were recording this at the, the beginning of 2023 and a lot of people are getting very excited about hashtag dungeon 23 right we're yes. all doing these room a day mega dungeons and so am i you know <laughs> and i have to keep kind of fighting my impulse to be like oh well actually no you know nobody would build this well there's no <laughs> you know, no actual tombs are never as elaborate as you want them to be from a gaming standpoint you know what i mean because yeah for various reasons for technological reasons for social reasons i mean there are very elaborate temple complexes and things but in general people uh and and i think there's a lot you can learn like i did do some architectural history as part of my ma and that definitely sort of feeds into the way that i design spaces yes. but also i do think that i mean i i don't even know that it's that that archaeology influences the stuff that I write about so much as that, you know, being a, a gaming nerd and caring a lot about history and mythology and things, sort of why I wanted to do archaeology. Although, having said that, the pamphlet of Pantheons, which is a, a zine that I put out last year, is very uh, implied by that, or implied, inspired by that, because one of the things that I always say is real things are always a little weirder than fake things, right? Like, if yeah. you... I, I, I almost talk about this like if you watch Game of Thrones or whatever, they go to like fish town and yeah. everybody there is just 24 seven all about fish. They love fish. Welcome <laughs> to fish town. I'm the Fisher King. I sit on the driftwood chair. Like, do you like my net hat? You know, because there's a million characters and they want to keep them straight. Yeah. So they're very into branding. <laughs> but in actuality, like, oh, what's the national drink of England? Uh, Tea. What the, you mean from China? Like, things, <laughs> you know what I mean? Things things are com more complicated and weirder than they seem. But if, you know, if you want to make your fantasy setting feel real and lived in, then how do you go about it? And one way is you could do the Glorantha version, which is where you actually do just create these incredibly complex societies and mythologies and histories and all this stuff. 
and it feels so rich. But at the same time, I think some people feel kind of put off by how complex it is. Like they feel like they have to yes. do a bunch of homework, which I'm not saying they do, but I think they feel that way. Oh, yeah. How do you have a tiny piece of knowledge and make it look like that tiny piece of knowledge is merely the the tip of the iceberg, right? Yes. Like I, I don't have to design this entire society. I only have to design the parts that the players interact with, but I just want them to feel like there's a bunch of extra stuff there. So I wanted to feel weird. And that was very much what the pamphlet of Pantheons was all about, which is like, okay, we're making up a fantasy religion and we're not going to have like, this guy's the god of fire. This one's the god of war. That one's the god of love. Like that's not how real Pantheons work at all. So I wanted to just go, okay, well, here's how we take these things and then twist them and complicate them and have two of the same thing, but in a way that is still really quick and really accessible and fun to do, hopefully, right? So for me, that kind of like studying history and studying archaeology kind of helped me identify that feeling of complexity of, of like depth. And then I was like, okay, well now how do I synthesize it? Like, how do I fake it? <laughs> Um, so I'd say that how do you how do you fake it how do you fake it so uh, now we're we're getting we're coming about on time um i just want to ask a quick question i know that Mm -hmm. we got we got zine quest coming up here soon and zine month and everything else all kinds of stuff happening do you have anything planned for the future we can look forward to i do which the future which may be the present by the time (laughs) yeah so i do have a kind of like uh, so everything I say is subject to change because, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I'll change my mind tomorrow, but I'm currently working on a, uh, a kind of like conceptual sequel to the pamphlet of Pantheons. Uh, it's going to be about, uh, it's provisionally called the manual of militaries. Uh, it's provisionally about, um, armies and military units in fantasy worlds, but not anything to do with like strategy or logistics. Right. It's about like their life and their role in civic life. And like, you know, when your fighter was in the army, like (laughs) who are the kinds of people they met? What kind of stuff did they get up to? What like traditions or or things might they have? Or sort of like, yeah, if you happen to be in an army camp or in a city under siege, like what are the kinds of things that are going on? It's more like a social aspect of that. And again, it's just the same way that that with Pantheons, because real again, real real wars and real military forces are weird and complex and have their own goofy traditions. I'm like, if you, and, and they're not like you think they're going to be. Yeah. Um, well, I think the at, number one, the number one tradition in, 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 in any of those is always the hurry up and wait. So you definitely have to have hurry up <laughs> and wait rules in there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But also like, like it just, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who, um, and my colleague from the History and Games Lab at the University of Edinburgh, Dr. John Luca Vercagni, and he was telling me that in, now I'm going to get this wrong, I, I, he told me which Italian city-state it was, but I don't remember, let's say Florence, but I could be wrong. There's a, a, a job called the Gonfalonieri, basically the standard bearer, but it's not that he carries the standard in battle, it's that he keeps it in his house. Oh, and so when you know when the military is going to go to war, they have to call up this guy, and he goes and brings it out. And this is a position of great honor to be entrusted with this sacred artifact. But it's also just like it's just in a guy's house. Like it's not, you know, it's not some shrine. It's not whatever. And I just love that that weird little detail. Yeah. And this was an important political post. Um, you know, that wasn't his only responsibility. He was also responsible for other things. But the sign of his office was that he kept the battle standard in his house. And you just sort of think, 
you know what an odd custom to lose an election and then take the the standard from the guy's house and take it somewhere else and there's those kinds of odd quirks like you don't want to synthesize the or simulate the like century of italian city-state politics that led to this tradition being a thing yeah you just want a weird thing that suggests oh this place has complex politics yeah um and so that's kind of my goal with this this project and i'm i'm talking right now with artists and i hope that i'll be able to announce uh that we have a really cool artist for this project so because i had tim malloy for the last one and then ed bickford for magonian mind murders so yeah. i have to keep my streak going uh, <laughs> this is excellent this is excellent well can you tell the listeners where they can find you online where they can pick up your stuff absolutely so um uh my itch page is uh james holloway.itch.io i think that's right i said it earlier <laughs> um, I should really know. Uh, yes, that's correct. James-Holloway.itch.io. Um, you can find Monster Man at monsterman.lipsin.com. And you can find me on social media. I'm usually some variant of uh, Gonzo History. So I'm at Gonzo History on uh, Twitter. I'm Gonzo History at Dice.Camp on Mastodon. And on Instagram, I'm Monster Man Gonzo. Uh, but there it's, that's mostly just pictures of like miniatures on my dog. So, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so those are, those are all places that people can find me. And if they want to know about what I've got coming out, that, that'll all be there. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on. It's been great getting a chance to chat. Oh, thank you so much for having me. No, no doubt. No doubt. If you've enjoyed what you've heard here today, give us a positive review wherever you're listening. You can find us on Facebook, search Wobblies and Wizards. Wobbliesandwizards.com is our blog. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Crom, And we're on Patreon. We could really use support. Patreon.com backslash Wobblies and Wizards. And as always, keep those dice rolling.